0: This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. Claudia Christensen is not your run-of-the-mill Hollywood actress. She has directed, produced, written books and screenplays. She's done voiceover work before voiceover work was the cool thing to do. She's acted along some of the biggest stars, from Bob Hope, Faye Dunaway, Morgan Freeman, Larry Hagman... And Isabel Rosaline, just to name a few. You might have seen her on her hit TV show Babylon 5, or in the pages of Playboy. What you didn't know is, for years, she was in a battle for her life with alcohol.
1: Does it does it break my heart at times that I lost at least a decade of my life to that son of a bitch? Um, yeah, I miss the. I, I miss. I miss. Those years, but on the other hand, I realize what I've gained from it and what I've learned along the way and how happy I am now and that I overcame an immense struggle and that I can stand firmly in who I am today and be proud that I took something unbelievably heinous and turned it into something really beautiful.
0: I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Emmy winners, basketball coaches, sports writers, and photographer Greg Gorman. I came in and Sydney says, "Oh my God, Greg! How long have you been on this picture?" I said, "Well, this is my fifth week." Sydney says, "Oh my God, Christ! I can't, cannot uh, authorize you to stay on longer than this." I said, "Okay, um, I'll let Dustin know." And so I went to see Dustin and I said to Dustin, uh, "Listen, uh, Dustin." Uh, Sydney said, uh, You know, this has got to be my last week. Fuck Sydney. He says. <laughs> You stay on. The rest of my conversation with Greg can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor for diving into my conversation with Claudia Christensen. I've got an actor, a director, a producer, a writer, and the sexiest woman in sci fi. <laughs> How are you, Claudia? Well, maybe that was in 1998 or whatever. <laughs> 2001. Hey, That's a hell of an introduction. A <laughs> lot to live up to. Sci-fi magazine said it, right? So it's got to be said true. It, so it must be true. Right. It's got to be true. Sci-fi magazine said it. Yeah. You can't put something in, you know, a magazine and not be true. No, never. Gosh. No way. <laughs> like I said before we hit record, after reading your book, I wanted to give you a hug. We are the same age, and we've grown through the 80s, and young lady, you made it through the 80s. I sure did, boy, it, it, it was a,
1: a heck of a, a decade, and and I, I, in some way, I'm really unbelievably grateful that I had a, a, a 70s childhood in the woods with no cell phones and freedom and nature, and then I had an 80s childhood in Hollywood as a teenager, uh once again no cell phones no internet everything was um everything was well you know like I hate this word that everybody uses it's authentic i hate that. <laughs> but i have to say th- those kids don't know what authentic is what authentic is 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 having to pull over and put a a, a coin in the payphone to call your your agent because you're going to be late. Uh, Authentic is meeting people randomly everywhere you go and becoming friends instantaneously and committing to traveling together. You know, that's an authentic life. An authentic life has nothing to do with Instagram. No, no.
0: (laughs) And remembering phone numbers.
1: Oh, my gosh. I still remember phone numbers and addresses and everything. And, I mean, that's fading, unfortunately. The other day I had to stop myself from using, you know, my my Apple Maps. And I thought, I know how to get there. Why are you putting the address in? You've lived in Los Angeles since you were 16 years old. Right. Suddenly do you not know where Melrose is. <laughs> and then, then you justify it by saying, well, maybe uh, this will tell me if there's any accidents. Who the hell cares? Right. You're not See, gonna go you know, It's so interesting. You know, I had I had lunch at the House of Commons with a member of Parliament who's who's a gentleman who I adore and he is in his eighties and he said he, he has never sent a text or an email. And he said one of the biggest reasons is is because if you if you live your life through email and text, you don't have time to think. And deep thinking is required of great movement in the world, of political structure, of historical structures, of change, of great historical change is dependent upon people who think deeply through problems, who truly, truly think deeply. It has nothing to do with LinkedIn and synergy and all that crap people talk about. It has to do with a really brilliant mind sitting down and having the time and space to think And, and if you're answering a hundred emails a day, you don't have time to deep think at all. So he was right. And, and I really thought about that a lot. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to really live my life a little bit more like that and take at least 20 minutes a day to sit outside in nature and think.
0: Right. Yeah. We, we forget just sitting outside, whether it's your patio or whatever, just listen to sounds, turn off that damn phone, just leave it in the moment.
1: Yes, exactly. And everyone talks about, hey, you know, I'm going to be present. Well, you're you're not if you cannot leave your phone alone. You know, Larry Hagman, who directed my very first gig on Dallas, he had a great rule. I know my very first job in my career on film and television was an episode of Dallas with Larry Hagman with a bottle of champagne in one hand, wearing lederhosen, um, directing me. And God bless him. What a man. Um, <laughs> He took every Sunday of his life uh, for God knows how many years and he refused to talk to anybody. He didn't say a word on
0: Sundays. And I thought that was so interesting. Wow. He just, he had silent Sundays. Where do you know where he got that philosophy or idea or just. I don't know. I never, I never, you know, I, I found out about it through somebody
1: and I didn't have the courage to ask him on the one day I worked on that gig, but it would have, it, it, it was something that he did for himself, and he did it literally for decades. He just refused to speak on Sundays, silent Sundays. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, I'm slowly but surely taking more and more time away from devices and 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 definitely from social media. I think social media is one of the beastliest things on the planet. I think it's really depriving us of of, of community and and friendships and and. And just, uh, you know, a deep understanding of the human condition, I think that it's stripping everything down to uh, a very odd and and unhealthy need, which is pick me, look at me, and it's out of desperation and it's sadness and deep loneliness. I think that the, the one of the core really, really sad things about the United States is the deep loneliness. And I travel extensively for all of my work. And I'll tell you, I spent six weeks in France in the countryside. I didn't see one person with a cell phone on their table while they were eating a meal with friends or family, period. Yeah. And they were, they were deep in all four generations. were sitting around talking, laughing. And I thought, wow, you look at the American table and every person is just locked
0: to that. We were in Montana in June in a little town, Ennis and, My wife and I were there for five days and we noticed the same thing. We would go into a, into a restaurant. Nobody had their phone out. They were all talking. There was a little event. The kids were wood whittling. Like I was like, if you tried to have a knife in Santa Monica and you had it, gave it to a nine-year-old to wood whittle, they would take your kids away. They would arrest the parents. There's no way they'd let you do that in West LA. I know. I know. I grew up with, you know, Everything. Razor blades. We were dissecting dead animals with giant Bowie yeah. blades. I mean, yeah. you, know. you never, never, I can guarantee you never rode a bike with a helmet on, right? You never, you never you, never, you never skateboarded with knee pads. You never, none of that. No, I didn't even wear seatbelts in the car. We did right. cross And I was
1: in the back with, with, I had a a bowl for the water for my dog and the dog was in the back with his food and and everything. And I was in the back seat (laughs) sliding around through, through Texas and and Oklahoma and, you know, and we'd pop the window and we'd jump through, the dog would jump around the car on everybody.
0: (laughs) And there was an ashtray in the car and somebody was probably smoking.
1: Oh, thank goodness. My parents didn't smoke. good. (laughs) Small mercies. (laughs) My mom didn't have a martini in her
0: hand when she was pregnant either. She was, she was more inclined to sugar. (laughs) What was the spark for you? What was like the igniter that said, I want to become a performer. Oh gosh,
1: that's very easy. I was doing a, I was uh, hired. I say (laughs) I was five years old and they picked me to play chief Massasoit in the annual Thanksgiving play. And uh, because, I had the longest hair, so they braided it into these giant braids and um, let me play the chief. And all the my friends were playing the pilgrims and, and other Native Americans. And I remember, I remember being in the newspaper, sitting right in front, you know, cross-legged, mm-hmm. you know, with an Indian feather, feathered headdress on, and I was just a little squirt and. Uh, and when we finally did the play, I realized that this was the only time that adults were actually listening to me. And and they were all sitting in the audience politely staring up at me while I recited lines. And I thought, this is power, this is power, man. And I mean, I lived in a house with three older brothers, so I never got a word in edgewise, nor was I, you know, I was very quiet. I'd hide under the table from my brothers and, you know, I was very shy. And, and so this was a moment for me to just say, wow, this feels good standing up here delivering lines and having people smile at me and laugh and it was wonderful do you remember any of your lines (laughs) probably they probably threw in a very un-pc how (laughs) something like that yeah i'm sure i'm sure it was awful and and
0: uh stilted dialogue but well you were five i mean what were they going to give you You weren't going to break out shakespeare
1: And then, well, then I ended up playing Ramona the Pest, and that led to uh, Shakespeare as a teenager. Funny you say that. um, (laughs) I've I've played some of the greatest roles. I did a few years ago. I played Lady Macbeth. um, Where? uh, In Los Angeles, we. I'm a member of this this group that was spawned through a thing called Brit Week, where we uh, the, the wonderful director Louis Fantasia, who was also. A key in rebuilding the globe in London. He's a Shakespearean expert and um, I do uh, Shakespeare for the masses. It's sort of a way to assimilate people into Shakespeare with small bites. So Harry Hamlin and I did a few scenes from Macbeth. You know, we do a few scenes from others' plays. So people don't get overwhelmed and they still learn to love the language. And and um, and and we get really dynamite performances. Uh, Jolly Fisher does it occasionally. Jane... Um. Oh, God, I just spaced on her last name. That's so weird. The British actress who was in the James Bond thing. Uh, Seymour. Jane Seymour. Oh, Jane Seymour. It.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: Michael York. Wonderful Michael York. Oh, yes. Uh, with us. Um. I actually did a film with him. Lovely man. Um. Yeah, the, the, really, uh, Michael Nuri, who I did The Hidden With, sometimes plays with us. I mean, really great actors that love classical theater, so... Um, yeah, so I went from chief mass association to, to lots and lots of theater and then, um, ended up, uh, ended up wanting to be, um, on television when I saw funny enough, another kismet, you know, 12 step connection. Uh, uh, and I don't mean that in an AA way. I mean that in seven, seven, seven steps from Kevin yeah. Bacon or whatever it's called six degrees of separation. Um, I was watching Little House in the Prairie and I saw Melissa Gilbert as Half Pint. I was was about 12 and I said, that's it. No more theater. I'm going to be on TV. If she can do it, I can do it. And funny enough, years and years later, Melissa Gilbert was married to my co-star in Babylon 5, Bruce Boxleitner, and I worked with her on Babylon 5. (laughs) So, I mean, talk about, here's this little 12-year-old in in Weston, Connecticut, staring at the TV. It's the only TV show I was allowed to watch was 60 Minutes and Little House on the Prairie. Wait, wait, wait. 60 Minutes? That's all my father allowed us kids to watch was 60 Minutes and Little House on the Prairie. That was it. So you had a choice. One was on Sunday night. One was on Monday night. So really? you only had one. So I chose to peek at 60 minutes behind their backs and watch Little House in the Prairie in their bedroom on Monday night. You and I remember you that was my all to myself because my brothers didn't want to watch that no. show. So I had the whole room to myself and I'd sit there glued to this this wonderful show starring children. Right. There were so many children in it. And I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to and then when my dad was transferred to California I was I was 13 about to turn 14 and he told me the news that we were moving yet again and when he said California I went it's a sign I'm going to Hollywood little did I know he was going to park us in Orange County but that's a-
0: <laughs> yeah it's not really Burbank Right into the back. No, yeah. not
1: Studio City, where I live yeah. now. No,
0: yeah. no, no, nowhere near uh, Warner Brothers or anything. And it you was, were in Deep Orange County back then, too, in Laguna. Oh, no, no, so I to Laguna Hills and Laguna Beach. That's really far away.
1: Yeah, that's a good hour and change for a kid stealing her mom's car on the on the one hundred and one and the five freeway. <laughs> so, but you dabbled in modeling. I did because when I was 14, I suddenly blossomed from awkward to attractive and I was on the beach and this photographer sort of found me and set up an appointment in New York after he photographed me. Um, he sent some photos off and got me an appointment at Nina Blanchard and at Eileen Ford in New York. So at that point I was doing modeling like, you know, just local stuff and, and I was doing newspapers and um, a couple of magazines and just things that various people hired me for. I had a bunch of jobs at that point because I was determined to do high school in two years. So I, I had to work a bunch of extra credits to get work credit applied to my GED. So at that point I was just trying to make enough money to live in Los Angeles. And um, when they said that there was an opportunity to go to New York um, I was, I think 15 and a half at that point. And I had a, um, a photographer, a female photographer, come with me as my chaperone. And she took me to New York. Seriously, she took me to New York and I met with these modeling agencies. And I was already five foot nine and skinny as a as a you know greyhound. And they told me to lose more weight. And I remember and I was so skinny. And and I was sort of already prone to developing an eating disorder because after a childhood of being told to finish my plate, suddenly, you know, when I was about 12, I was a little chubby and I was told, you know, now you have to diet. So it was so confusing to me. So I overdid it in the calorie counting and stuff. So I know that my brain was already changing into somebody who could easily fall into a, a, a food disorder. And when they said that to me, I remember the chaperone, God bless her, she she turned to me and she Put her hands around my face. And she said, you know what, Claudia? Screw them. You are perfect the way you are. You will always be perfect. And besides which you're better than this. Let's go to Hollywood. You, sh- you should be an actress. Screw modeling. And and, and I said, well, that's what I want to do. And she said, I don't even know why we're here. I'm sorry. I brought you. She said, they have no right to tell you to lose weight. And, and she, I was so ha- happy about that. I felt so great. And that gave me the confidence as a young girl, you know, in the most insecure time of your life is fourteen, fifteen. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: Hey, the hormones are raging, and you're changing, and and I came back with this really firm resolution to finish high school, get my GED, and move to LA. And so I worked another job, and another job. I lied about my age. I was doing serving drinks. I yes. was a host. I that was like was a great. Ho- Oh yeah. And and I was stealing money from the till. You know, I was doing everything I could to make enough money. And I got a bank account. I I changed my name legally. I did everything in preparation. And by the time I was sixteen and I could drive, I just said that's it. And I stole my mom's car, met a
0: manager, and the rest is forty years of, <laughs> of craziness. Now, if let's let's break down what might the modeling agency be looking at. Like you were five nine, almost five ten. I, yeah, I was uh,
1: five foot nine, and uh, I probably weighed a hundred and I don't know five pounds. I oh mean, that's my God. Oh, yeah, and I mean, right now I'm I'm the same height, and I'm one hundred and thirty pounds, and I'm a size four six. Right. So it's not like I was not. I mean, imagine when I did when I did my first uh, movie, The Hidden. I was. I was 120 pounds, and I was bone thin. You can see it. I I stripped down in that movie. I didn't have an ounce of fat on my body, and I was 15 pounds more than I was when the modeling agency saw me. So it's ridiculous. The standards were ridiculous. Of course, they don't do that now. They have all
0: sizes.
1: Um, But... But back then it must have been
0: skin and bones, no boobs, no no butt, no no nothing.
1: No, boobs, no butt. I was—you can see bathing suit pictures of me from that era. I'm literally—I mean, I I look like a prepubescent ten-year-old. I mean, I'm just skin and bones, you know. And that's—and tall. I was—I had shot up like five inches, so there's no way there was no place for any. There was no weight. There was no, (laughs) yeah. Way to lose. I mean, I would have you. You already saw my ribs. I mean, you could see in this in the bathing suit shots. My ribs were completely showing. Oh my god! So, so I think it was just sort of a, a standard thing where they weighed you and did like a height thing and did a, a uh you know some sort of measurement, not taking into account you know if somebody's big boned or whatever. I, I right. don't know whatever it was. It was it was it was, it was fortunate in a way, because it, it made me realize that I didn't, I didn't want to do this. I'm, I would much rather be rejected as an actress than as a model, right. <laughs> you know, because then I'm doing what I love to do. Why am I doing a stepping stone to the career that I want to be in? Why not just go for the career I want to be in? Why do I need a
0: stepping stone? Right. Why not just go right for the gold? See, what always bothers me about that, especially as a photographer, so like they'll do, they'll put rap over like where you were Playboy or Penthouse. Can't see the cover of that. But they'll show Cosmo or Vogue, and Mm -hmm. they don't tell you that they've manipulated Scarlett Johansson seven times to put her on the cover. Mm -hmm. And there's no warning to a 14-year-old girl, like, yeah, this has been manipulated.
1: Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that with Playboy in the same sentence because when I did Playboy, they didn't retouch me. That was all done with lighting. Yeah. That's all done with lighting. They don't stretch you. They don't do, I said, well, are you going to retouch everything? She said, no, no, no. It's all done with lighting. Right. This was now mine was back in 99. So they, I don't know what they do nowadays. They probably do the whole Instagram filter crap and all that. But, <laughs> but, but, but back in those days, it was just the skill of the photographer to light your skin in the way that it would look the most luminescent and beautiful.
0: Right. And as a, as a woman, who's tall, right? So you've got that advantage. You know, your body better than anybody, you know, this is my good side. I can lay my legs like this. I get long. I can narrow myself out. I can get broad shouldered. If I want women are really good at that, especially if they're actresses and models, they know. Sure. Sure. So you get, you get in front of a photographer and a guy who can light. You're gorgeous. Done. Exactly. We know, we know our stuff. (laughs) So when things start taking off for you in the 80s, right? Like the LA Olympics is happening in 1984 and you're skyrocketing. You're doing Webster. You're doing Dallas. You're doing Falcon Crest, the A-Team. Like you're just blowing up on TV shows. Are you starting to think in your head like this is it? Like I'm, I'm here? I haven't made it like I'm doing movies, but I'm in LA and I'm happening.
1: You know, it never. I was so focused on first of all the the naivety of the the naive confidence that I had was because everything fell into place. I just knew that this is what I wanted to do, and I did it. And it was a different world back then. You know, when I went up for an audition, it was six of us usually the same girls I'd see in the waiting room. There'd be you know maybe twelve there'd be a redhead, there'd be a dark haired girl that, you know, nowadays I go up against uh, every race, every sexuality. uh, You know, there's no way that I would be able to do what I did in the nineties, play two transsexual roles on television nowadays, you know, I I mean, I'd be able to do that today. Um, And I fought hard for those roles, you know, (laughs) but but you, but I would never be hired as a transsexual nowadays. Uh, so everything has changed, and I also go up against men. I go up against you know every every role that that now they see hundreds of people, not dozens anymore. So it's a completely different world. But did I think that I made it? I wasn't. I was just happily working toward the goal of being a, a career actress. So in other words, I just thought this should happen in my twenties this should happen in my thirties. And by my forties, I will grow into these roles. And I saw it long term. I was looking forward to a really, really long, long steady career that had an upward incline, obviously, but then I got massively interrupted when I, I developed a substance use disorder. So that took away a good trajectory of my career. I mean, it, it hit me at a time when I was really at my height, you know, my late thirties. Right. So it, It it took me from my, I mean, I'm, I think I'm a much better actress now, but as a saleable entity, you know, your, your late thirties as a, as a woman, wow, that's when you should be starring in these films. And I had tested for things like basic instinct and speed. And I mean, I was getting opportunities for, for big things before my addiction crept in. So I knew that I could have, I could have, uh, you know, it's funny, my brother says, you know, well, you would have been an A-lister had alcoholism not not stolen that from you. <laughs> and I like to say to him, hey, I still got time, kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm not going anywhere. That's the funny thing about, uh, you know, about this industry. Back then, I was telling somebody this the other day. Um, back then, I remember the high from getting a role every single time. I remember that absolute thrill. And that has never dissipated in 40 years. I still get so excited when it says offer in my email box. I still get that endorphine rush when I get an audition. I and and that's what that's the sort of uh, addicting thing about a life in the arts. When you get chosen, or you beat everybody out for something, or you get something you really want, it's a joy that I can't even that nothing mimics. There's no drugs or alcohol or love or any endorphine that I can think of, chocolate or whatever that (laughs) matches. the joy I get when I book a job and that's kind of a sickness in itself, but it, it just, I, I derive so much joy from working as an actress that it, 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 it just is never dulled. It's never gone away. So that's why I, I know that I'm in this for life, whatever it, it's going to pan out to be. But is that a little bit of the competitiveness in you though? That you've. No, no, it's not. It's fulfillment. It's not competitive. Okay. It's not saying, oh, look, I beat out all these people at all. It's, oh, wow, I did well, well enough. I, I projected something that they think that, they, that, that I can do the part in the way that they want me to. I can tell their, I can, I can portray their dream. You see, a lot of people say, you know, a lot lot of actors are really into creating things for themselves and creating projects and entities and all this stuff. And I do that as well. But my joy is bringing a writer's character and a director's vision to life. That is my joy. My joy is making those creatives happy with my performance and bringing their vision of that character to life. I find joy in that more than anything is is i feel like that's a job well done when when they're happy with wow. my take on the character and they're happy with the way i delivered the lines and the way that i'm performing this then i'm happy that's the joy i derive is making their dream come to fruition so i'm a conduit it's has
0: that's not a competitive nature at all that's a team player yeah that's true i mean when you're doing this, you're doing something with as many people in a movie, you need everybody to be on the same page, right? Yes. Have, have you? I know my job. I yeah. know my job. My job is
1: to not make a fuss and to say the lines in, in the best way possible. And to be a professional, not in any ways, anybody's way. And I always make an effort. You know, it's, it's funny. I was on the set of nine, 9-1 one last nine, one, one last week. And a, one of the crew guys said, you're always so considerate of everybody on the crew. And I thought, well, if I can make your job easier, the steady cam operator who's carrying a huge camera around with him and has and a very, very tricky shot. If I can make everybody's job easier, A, we get out of here sooner, and B, everybody's happy because we got a great take. So why would I not assist you or anybody else <laughs> right. or the focus puller or you know, whatever. So it, it just seems like it's collaboration. It's not a, it's not about one person, it's about all of us making this television show. So
0: let's all work together. You've you've got a great view. You've seen TV in the eighties when it was very simple still. To now it was
1: film, darling. It was film.
0: Yeah. <laughs> not on film. Yeah. To now, like there's are steady cam operators for a TV show and there's green screen and gimbals and all kinds of stuff. I mean, the early shows you were on. That was pretty simple television. Oh, it was a master and two, a master, two, two shots and some close
1: ups. (laughs) And there (laughs) you go. Done. And you shot the scene, and you had a hair light, an eye light. You had your key light, you had, you know, and you knew where to find your light, and uh, if you, you know, you had all this beauty light, so you looked like, I mean, it's so funny when I look at some of the things like Columbo I did with Faye Dunaway, and you- Yes! Yes, yes you, cut, you cut to Faye Dunaway, and she looks like she's, she's, she's like shot through Vaseline, and then you cut over to me, who's in my 20s, and I got nothing, you know, they didn't put any light on me, because I didn't need it, I was in my 20s, you know. They lit you
0: with high beams off a truck.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny now when I look back. They lit these women. Oh, and I did. Uh, I did. Of course, I was um, Jessica Fletcher's neighbor in Murder, yeah. Murder you know, She Wrote. Angela yes. Lansbury, all soft focus, and there's me. You know, in my twenties. You know, <laughs> clear as a bell. Every freckle on my face. You
0: know, it's so funny. It was. It was. Um, now I'm the one who needs all the lights. <laughs> oh, You've worked with legends, though. Straight yes. up legends. Bob Hope, Dunaway, like you said uh you know Bert lancaster. Bert lancaster yeah morgan freeman when he was still kind of coming yeah. up
1: michael, you know,
0: michael uh, keaton yeah. that movie for him that kind of put yep. people in chops he wasn't just a comedian anymore
1: yeah yeah nicholas cage uh I've, I've worked with a lot of a lot of interesting actors a lot of uh, a lot of the greats. I was really it, there's an uncredited role I did because I was cut out of the film, and that was called Tough Guys with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. And I remember I was just literally, I think I was just 18, and I, I, yeah, and I I was cast as a in a restaurant scene. I had a couple of lines, and it ended up getting cut out of the film. But I thought, even then, I knew who I was working with. I was like, this is. Bert, bloody Lancaster. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm working with him and Spartacus. I mean, it, was like, it was crazy. And Spartacus. I mean, I thought, this is insane. These are legends, you know? And when I was cast with Faye Dunaway as her daughter, I thought, wow, this is Chinatown, you know? Yeah, so, and, of course, Peter Falk, who was just delightful. Bob Hope? And Bob Hope and Don Michi. And, well, that whole film is laden with stars. Look at that. Oh, God. And, and Yvette Mimieux is in it, who I ended up doing a series with. years. That same year, actually, I was cast in a series with her. Um, Yvonne DiCarlo was in that. Uh, Frank Gorshin, the Batman, the original one. Uh, really great Broadway actors. Uh, Anita Morris I worked with. Um, you know, just uh, Andrea Markovici. I mean, just I've, I've really had... Uh, Amazing, Um, amazing. And Babylon 5 for for four years and a bunch of movies was Aladdin with Theodore Raquel, Michael York. I mean, we had great theater actors that came on there as well. Um, So I've been really, really, really blessed in my career to have worked with a host of people. Yeah,
0: because your, your crossover in that time period is perfect. I know, I got the end of, because the 50s and 60s
1: megastars were still alive. Yeah. So I was meeting the Burt Reynolds at parties. I was meeting, you know, Chuck Heston going to his uh, New Year's Eve party. I was meeting all these, all, all these legendary people, Farrah Fawcett. No, I was meeting them at parties, and and you know, working with Jacqueline Smith, who I had looked, I had watched on on Charlie's Angels <laughs> as a child. I mean, here I was playing her sister. Can you imagine? You know, as a kid, I'm watching Charlie's Angels, thinking, oh, my favorite one is Jacqueline Smith. She's the pre- <laughs> And then years later, I'm I'm in my 20s again, playing her little sister. It's just remarkable. Oh, my God. I know. I, I know. When I think back then, but it's so funny when you ask the question, did you know that you were doing this? No. I didn't pinch myself or anything. It was just work. I was just working. I didn't sit there and go, oh, my God, I'm working with so-and-so. For me, it was just, well, this is cool. This is fun. It yeah. was, I was quasi about it because it's. I was just sort of – i was so naive and so confident that i just thought well this is the way it's supposed to be right i'm supposed to be working like this right. <laughs> now i think about it i think had i just kept that confidence up my whole career i would probably never have a problem now because working was so infrequent that that now i everything is so precious when, when i book something it's like oh my god it's like winning the
0: bloody lottery you know what was it what was it like in those 80s when you would get a phone call no email of you've got the job
1: oh it was great it was so exciting um well first of all we had we had of course only one phone, that was our landline, but but we had an answering machine. That's right. Yeah, so you you check it from a phone booth. I'd pull over and check my answering machine to see if there were any messages. And occasionally, there would be like, congratulations, kiddo, you got the whatever, you know, uh, job or whatever it was. And, and I would just sit on the corner of the street in and sunset and high, going, ah, you know. <laughs> You know, screaming to nobody. Uh, uh, yeah, there were a lot of moments like that. Or I'd get home and check my messages. or my And my manager would be saying, give me a call, sweetheart. And I, <laughs> I'd <hear the> voice. a <laughs> voice. You know, I remember, uh, I, in fact, that movie you mentioned, Morgan Freeman, I remember I went up for the Kathy Baker role in that. And and my manager pulled a fast one on me. She said, my agent actually called me. And she said, um, <clears throat> well you didn't get the, the, the role, um, because she said, but hold on a second. It's because you were too young, but they really, really love you and they want to offer you without reading for it. The only other female role in the film, which was Iris, the the girl in the drug in the (laughs) rehab facility. And when I think about that, like that's pretty amazing in itself as well. That I didn't even have to read for that. In the beginning of my feature career, I'd maybe done one or two features before that, and it it made up for other times. You know, there was a there was a funny funny incident where Miloš Forman was um, casting Les Liaisons Dangereuses. and I was hired to be the reader, but they they sort of kind of promised me that I was going to be playing Mertul, and I was like well, okay, so why am I reading with everybody? I guess I have to read with everybody to get chemistry reads. I worked on that bloody film for six weeks, reading with everybody, reading with the biggest stars, Daniel Day-Lewis, you name, I mean, everybody was coming in to read with Milos Forman, and I was the reader. And I read with everybody, y- you name the star, they came in. And it's at the time, I was like, okay, well, that's because I'm playing the role. It turned out, no, he does this all the time. Oh. He just people and of course he hired Annette Benning, who was 10 years older 20 years older than me or whatever but it was like wh- what I was so pissed off I thought and then I realized the casting director said oh no sweetheart you know to my agent oh no he does this all the time he just he just picks an actress that he likes and 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 has to read. and my agent was even pissed off at that like well that seems a little presumptuous that she wasn't told that clearly yeah and was I was promised something. I wasn't even paid. Six weeks of my life. What? No, I wasn't even paid for it. I hung out in a hotel room for six weeks. My now, God! At least there wasn't any
0: hanky panky. No, Harvey. <laughs> well, <that's awesome. laughs> you had some pretty crazy in those twenties. Your twenties were pretty crazy. Between jet setting, getting around, get buying a house, getting married—like it was, it was wild for you. When was there a point that you were like, wow, Hollywood's a bit of a mess? I didn't really think that because
1: I had the expectation. Everyone, I knew about the casting couch when I first came to L.A. I had girlfriends that were my age. I, I heard stories. I mean, I I had been hit on by men, and you just learned to say no. I mean, I had my whole Robert Evans thing where I showed up to auditions. Right. He exposed himself to me. You know, and I was 18. I shut my briefcase, took my headshots back, threw back the script at him, and said, no, thank you, and walked out. I, you know, I just said I, I don't think I'm the girl you want, and I walked out of the room, called my agent, and said, "You're right, he was a creep." <laughs> you know, this was a setup because my agent told me I wouldn't go alone, and I said I can handle myself, and I could handle myself, but I, but I knew that that I knew that there was crazy stuff going on, but it just all felt normal. You know, I'm sure people would say that about the '60s and '70s. You know, growing up. During the the 60s, that must have felt very liberating and, and, you know, civil rights movement and everything changing. But and of course, the Vietnam War (laughs) happening. I mean, I'm sure that during those eras, people weren't really conscious. You're not consciously saying, wow, I'm living in an interesting era. I mean, you're just living. You're going to these clubs and seeing all these amazing acts and people. And when I look back now, I think. Holy moly! I was hanging out with Billy Idol and <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, and, and the brat pack, and I was, you know, I was always in interesting company. I was going to the carousel ball every year because I was dating the son of a pet of a studio. I was hanging out with Jody Fayed, so we were traveling the world together. And I don't, I don't think I took it for granted, but I also don't think I was gobsmacked like some country bumpkin because I. I grew up in a sophisticated household and I, I with a European mother and I just thought, well, this is the way it's supposed to be i don't know i didn't I didn't really know any different. Your you know, mom I'm, sounds like a kick she's funny, God bless her uh, yeah, she's a hoot, and she she's also one of those people she knew exactly what she wanted. She left a war torn Germany, came to America, was a dental hygienist her first client was may West her <laughs> second client was Gregory Pack. She then dated William Frawley who was on I Love Lucy. I mean and then and this was when she didn't even speak English and she's and so then then she ends up being the manager of Georgie who's in Beverly Hills with no education, by the way, she totally lied about, on her resume, back then you could because there was no such thing as Google, and she really lied about everything, and she like claw, clawed her way through Saxtruth Avenue and all these designer salons and ended up being this, you know, Beverly Hills star. She was the national spokesperson for Red Perfume. I mean, this is a woman who had, a, a you know, education of, of up till 13 years old. And, I mean, yeah, she's a she's a superstar herself. And then she transformed herself into an award-winning interior designer. <laughs> Unbelievable. Once again, with no education, no training. So, And she's a beauty.
0: Like, I think you described her gorgeous. in the book, and she's gorgeous. Oh, she's drop-dead gorgeous. She was also a model, yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a good mom to have. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, and my father also was a hardworking man who, who you know uh, – just could do anything. He could not only, you know, he's the district manager of Shell Oil Company, but then he could also build a house. Everybody had different talents. You know, my my brothers are like that too, scientists, builders. You know, one is a a veterinarian, but he's got a million other talents. I mean, so we're all sort of ambidextrous in that sense. And and
0: resilient as hell. (laughs) I mean, you worked really hard on your craft. I got that from the book and looking at and researching. I mean, you didn't just bullshit your way through you busted your hump. Oh,
1: I went to every great acting coach. I, I did summer courses at Lambda. I did years and years of theater training. I did uh, improv around the world for 20 years. So I would get my improv skills up. I studied with, Everybody, great. I mean, you name it, I've studied with them. So, and I was, if I was not working, I was in a class. That's what we did back then. Nobody just was a YouTube star and, and got on a story. Nobody did that. Everybody was getting headshots and and working on their craft. I was in classes with Sean Penn. I mean, you know, these were, everybody was still honing their craft with Peggy Fury or Larry Moss. And we were, you know, we were all work, Milton Katsalas. We were all working all the time in everybody was in scene study class. You never just, you know, got a, got a job and then said, okay, I can act now. Right. You were, Absolutely, going to the gym. And the gym was
0: scene study classes. You're, when I met you, I thought, okay, this is a woman that can, it it comes from that Hollywood era of you could probably ride a horse, dance, sword play, (laughs) act, right? Like you're, you're like a Swiss army knife. You're, you're accomplished in all those things. So if they said to you, we need you on a horse, you're going to jump off, you're going to dance with the the evil villain and have a sword fight, you could accomplish it.
1: Yes, I I did sword fighting in in uh, in Highlander and many other projects. I rode horses in westerns and many other many other movies. I rode motorcycles. I can sing. I can dance. I can I can speak
0: in in about twenty
1: different accents. Uh, yeah,
0: your accents are really strong.
1: <laughs> so, well, I lived in England for thirteen years too, so but that helped. Do you get a
0: little that bit from mom with the German accent oh, that kind of no. slides into? Oh yes, Eastern European.
1: I, yes, I do. I do a lot of um, I do a lot of German and Russian and sort of a, a hybrid Eastern European. Plus, I do of course the fantasy accent for Blood of Zeus, for instance, which is a hybrid of British. I call it the Lord of the Rings accent. <laughs> you can do that a lot <laughs> for games. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, just I love it. I I love. I mean, your your voice is your tool as an actor, right? you have to learn how to use it and whether that's playing younger or playing older, especially as a voiceover actor, when I mean, we have to really manipulate our voice. Um, I just, I just finished a game the other day for a Japanese game where I was, I was dubbing the Japanese lines with, and you have to like match the exact same cadence, like the s- same time frame as the Japanese dialogue, which of course the languages are so different. Oh God. Yeah, but it's great. It's, it's for me, once again, it's like going to the gym. It's a workout. And uh, and when I, finished my day of work on that sort of thing. I feel like, oh, that was exciting and
0: fun. I still find joy. Even in those little, you know, those little VO gigs. That's good. That's good. When you were coming up, did you feel pegged like, Oh, the tall beauty or did you feel like you needed to be the serious actress comedian? Cause when you were in clean and sober, you almost stole some of those scenes, the way they lit you, you're, big head of curly hair, right? And you had that almost flash dance outfit going on and you were lit in that smoky room. And I'm like, she's the beauty still in the scene here. Tight, tight. Yeah. All that. yeah. That was um, Glenn Gordon Caron,
1: wonderful director, really, really thoughtful director. Um, you know, I was so fortunate to play so many different roles. I really was not typecast until uh, you know in the in the minds of the science fiction fans around the world until Babylon 5 but prior to that i was playing crazy women um <laughs> murderers strippers doctors uh lawyers um i, I, I mean a, a supermodel uh i was playing a, a lesbian trapped in the desert <laughs> uh which, you know um i mean there I, were all i watched <laughs> that one yeah, never on Tuesday. I, I, I played a, you know nurses and, and vixens. And so I wasn't really, I didn't have your classic ingenue phase per se, because I was very mature. When I was 18 doing Behringers, I was playing a 30-year-old. Yeah. And when I my second series, Black's Magic, I was, I must have been only maybe 20, and I was playing the mother of a nine-year-old and 10-year-old. So, I mean, I was always cast older because of my deep voice and because of my height. So I was like Lauren Bacall, you know, Lauren yeah. Bacall was, 19. she was playing that, that, you know, uh, with Humphrey Bogart, she was 19 years old and she was playing at least 30. So I think that I was sort of, sort of put in that mold as well. Um, which was fine. I, I had an opportunity to play tons of different roles back in the eighties and nineties and the yachts. So it was wonderful.
0: I thought when I, well, cause I watched a bunch of movies, bunch of bad ones, bunch of good ones, hexed. Like that movie was an absolute train wreck, but <laughs> you showed some serious comedic talent in there. And I was like, God, did they miss yeah. pegging <laughs> you in better roles, like as a um, comedic actress, you, you were killing it for a movie that was on fire going it was
1: so bad it was such a bad movie but i but yes i had so much fun playing hexena oh my gosh i had so many great moments where the director said do whatever you want i said can i do elvis presley when he punches me in the well, gut I, just- I? yeah sure do it can i do a yee over there when i do this he said yeah sure do it i mean everything i wanted to do i wanted to be jim carrey you have to understand that i wanted when i when i first when I first started seeing what he was doing in movies, I, that's, what I, that's who I wanted to be. I wanted, and I used to tell my agent, "I want to do all the Robin Williams and Jim Carrey roles." And they would look at me like I was a freak because I was getting all the dramatic roles because I'm so good at crying, and, and I was getting all the authoritative roles because I'm so authoritative, <laughs> you know. So, get, you know, cast her as the general, the captain, the commander, the, you know, right. the lieutenant, mm. yes, yes, and the sword fighter, and the the immortal, and the and the queen. You know, I was getting all those roles. I was like, "You guys don't understand. I'm funny." <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs> I've always been funny. The only person who gets it now, you know, is my partner. He's like, "Why don't why aren't you getting more comedy? You're so funny cuz all I do all day long is voices, you know. I I'm, I'm like a walking uh, I'm like 100 different people all day long and everything I do in voices. <laughs> Oh, even when we watch films, because he can't see far, so I do all the subtitles in the accent of the <laughs> film we're watching. So if it's a Japanese film, you're getting Japanese inflected English. If it's a German film, it's going to be a German accented.
0: <laughs> You'd be fun in the theater
1: during oh foreign film. That, <laughs> I, would, I should have done Mister uh, Murder.
0: What was that mystery? Oh, Mystery Three Thousand or something. Yeah, that, be...
1: that's some i the ideas. I definitely they could have used lots of the films I did. So, for yeah. That. A little, yeah,
0: Mystery Science Theater 3000, yeah. yeah. There's, you know, the ugly things in Hollywood they don't tell you is finance, money. How were you so good early on to make your money, keep your money, and not let it all just go away all the time? Because there's always ebb and flows of it's coming and going.
1: One word, baby, real estate. Buy a house when you're young. Because had I not bought my home in my 20s i never would have been able to sell said home for twice what i bought it and then buy a less lesser expensive house take that other money and save it for a rainy day so that's what i would do i would buy i bought it in a great neighborhood the house doubled in price i then bought in an upcoming neighborhood los Feliz, bought for less money put you know a few hundred thousand away bought that house fixed it up flipped it again five years later doubled my money again and so when there were lean years, you know, I was fine. And and that was always because of of my ability to choose really smart, really wisely in, in where I would buy a house. And it, I always doubled. I doubled on my flat in London. I doubled in all of my homes. Um, and then... Where did that, you get that sense? Who, who, who mentored we- you? Who... I always loved homes. Even as a child, I begged my father to build me my own home. And I had a little house in my backyard that was mine. I always was obsessed with homes, just having my own home. And so that that was helpful. Um, And I got, I mean, I guess I I got very, very lucky. I I, I would say that I was fortunate. I had a real estate angel on my shoulder that, that led me to great properties. And I had an instinct for how to rebuild them. I gutted this house that I'm in now and rebuilt it to what I wanted. And I I gutted it and built this amazing kitchen because I could see it. I walk into a house and I say, ah, you got to take the ceiling up. you got to take that wall down. You've got to do this. I just have a sense when I walk into a home of what it should be, what's aching to come out of the house. Um, That, and I don't spend money on stupid things. Every actor I knew when they got their first TV series, they would blow it on a new car. I did not buy a new car until 2014. I got my first new car of my life. And it was a Mazda SUV. I've, I've All the Mercedes and things that I had throughout my career were used cars that I got for great deals. I've never spent money on handbags or clothes because my mother is a shopaholic. So I have that. You know, I get all of her clothes. And I'm not interested in spending money on clothes. I'm saving for a second home. You know, I, I like... I like having money in the bank and real estate. I don't care about uh, getting a $600 facial or an $800 haircut. I don't do any of that garbage. I just, it's such colossal waste. I remember one of my friends was making a fortune on a TV series and she had to have the brand new cell phone and the newest car and the newest this and, you know, And I said to her, I said, you're going to regret this when you're in your 60s. You're not going to have anything. And she was like, oh, as if that ride was always going to last. And I knew it wasn't going to last. I knew that this wasn't going to last my 20s and my, you know, my teens. I knew this also the reason why I didn't go to college, because why would I waste my highest earning money years in college? Your highest earning money years are probably from 18 to 24 If you're good and you're attractive. Mm -hmm. So why the hell would I waste those sitting in a college learning what I already know how to do? You learn more on a set than you do in a class. I learned more working on a set as an actress than I did in any class in any, any school with any teacher.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I bet you can count a hundred people you've seen over your career that should have had a lot more money than they did and they blew it on the most dumbest crap, like you said, a car, uh, a relationship gone bad, all that kind of stuff. And it was ridiculous trips, you know, flying first class, uh, you know, get
1: all the time, not looking for deals, not not, um, you know, getting an eight hundred dollar night hotel room instead of an Airbnb where you can make half of your meals. You don't have to go out three times a day. All those sensible things that I just knew because I came from a family that nothing was handed to us. Right. You know, we were rich, so my dad worked his ass off, and my brothers worked their asses off to get through college, and they all paid for their own college. I paid for my own car, my own apartment, so nothing was handed to us, so we had to survive. so you don't I knew what a hundred dollars was. I knew how hard I worked for a hundred dollars. I remember thinking I was rich as a 16 year old because I was able to put a $10 dollar bill in my car as an emergency, and I thought, "Wow, I've made it, I'm rich <laughs> Because I was working four jobs and I had saved up enough money to actually put an emergency $10 bill in my glove box. I wow. thought, wow, wow, I am on top <laughs> of the world. i made it! I've <laughs> made I, it! I, I have made it! <laughs> but, but think about it. When I bought myself a new bathing suit, I knew that that took nine hours or 12 hours on my feet mm-hmm. in a store or serving cappuccinos. Or I had a very, very clear idea of what money was and how much it would cost to move to L.A., have a car, pay for gas. I was extremely conscious of saving and being frugal. And that's that, you know, that that carried me through. I'm a sensible person. I'm not like some, you know, person who spends like a
0: sailor on leave. Right. <laughs> uh, do you do you miss the the winery the the, the wine cellar that My you wine had? Cellar. Yeah, I remember seeing that in L.A. Times. I thought, boy, that woman's uh, got a beauty.
1: No, you know what? I don't miss anything about alcohol because of what it took from me. So <laughs> even the beautiful wine cellar, I don't, I don't miss it at all. I don't. I don't romanticize alcohol like some alcoholics do. Like, oh, when I could drink the big reds, no. <laughs> whiskey i am to the point where i look at it and i go that's the devil <laughs> so Keep I, away. I i have no romanticism about what that substance took from me it took a big chunk of my life away from me and i will never forgive it <laughs> I, will, I will never forgive the alcohol companies for making it seem like it was innocuous and and for selling it to teenagers and i will never no i will never look at it and say oh those were the days no I mean, you know, what was great about those days was I wasn't an addict and I was able to drink and enjoy it and that stuff. But the second it became an issue, I would never, never, oof,
0: I would never go back to those days. Yeah. Yeah. I read a Stanley Kubrick quote where he talked about actors should be better, but they go out late. They don't study their lines. They're lazy. So then Stanley gets the reputation of doing 30 takes at a time. When you were getting into your craft, did you take into consideration how much back-end work you had to do in studying your lines, finding that character, and getting better at your craft?
1: Well, but that was the joy in it. That That's that's the mo- one of the most exciting things to me is being on a TV series because I... Or getting a film that, that is a big commitment of time and the part is substantial. Um, because... In a series, you can see the the character evolving and you get the backstory and you create a character. And in a film, when you have the time to do so, you create this character. Uh, I did a film once called True Rights that nobody saw. And I remember (laughs) creating the way she walked and the way she would eat and the way that, you know, all of these things about this woman that I became this woman. And it was that's the joy of acting. So it's kind of frustrating for somebody like me who loves the homework. I love memorizing lines. I love all of it. I love every single thing having to do with 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 the process of of acting. I love it all. The only thing I don't like is being unemployed between jobs. <laughs> but it's what's really frustrating is is being used as an actor, which I have been for the past decade probably or more. I've had very rare opportunity to actually act. What I'm doing is just saying exposition. So, hmm. it, you know, there there's there's very there's a huge difference between having a fully formed character where it's got a backstory and you're directed and you're working on the character and you, you feel like you're really reaching and stretching your muscles that compared to doing an episodic where you're playing um, a detective who's just feeding the star some lines like, Oh yeah, no, we, that, that body came in at, 200 hours. It's been here about three days. You know, that's to me, that's, That's not acting. I'm feeding the lead person lines. Yeah, and you can argue that, whoa, there are no small roles, only small actors. You know, you can argue until the cows come home to me. But I'll tell you, after years and years of thanklessly delivering lines like, um, you know, uh, we have to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Or nailed it. (laughs) for the special today is lentil soup. I mean, after years and years of doing that, I can tell you the difference between exposition acting and really acting and it's it's palpable to say the least.
0: Yeah. yeah. Reading your book, I thought the if you wanted to rename the book, Guns, Dogs and Drugs would have been a good one. My god, gun being shot Dogs attacking the drug use was the eighties, but my, I almost drove off the road with the guns and the dog scenes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fans shooting you and dog oh, attacks.
1: Yeah. What oh, the yeah.
0: hell lady? Yeah, Claudia, I- that's amazing. I know. I know. My
1: dog attacked my face. She had a violent seizure, and that was scary. And then the, um, well, the 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 fan stuff that the guy shooting me at a convention is part and parcel of being a sci-fi icon. And that just comes with the territory. I mean, not that everybody's going to get shot by a fan, but um, but I think I think that that there's a certain let's say there's a certain shall we say. Uh, uh, can sort of detour from reality (laughs) for a lot of these people. Let me just say that in the kindest way possible. Some of of my fans seem to think that I truly am the person that I played, um, uh, particularly on Babylon five. So when they, you know, they, they, they have a difficult time um, differentiating between reality and, and television. So, um, that comes into play when you're when you're in the sci-fi genre world, fantasy and genre. It comes into play that you're going to meet a lot of kind of oddballs, and that's fine. They're, I call them my freaks and geeks. I mean, that's I, I I happen to love um, genre fans because they're because of their loyalty oh, and because yeah. they will follow you through your entire career the good the bad and the ugly they will buy your book damn it they will even buy your cd even though you can't sing you know <laughs> you know uh so yes and they're very supportive um you know when i went through my when i did playboy there was a lot of fans that were very upset at me because uh they thought that i was denigrating the character that i had created that i had on Babylon five. And I was like, yeah, but, but I paid my mortgage down. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to hand me six figures to take my kid off? Cause if you will, here's where you can send it. I'll do it again. I'll do it tomorrow. They want me to get naked again for, for <laughs> I'll Do it tomorrow. I'll pay this mortgage down. Not a problem. You know, I, there's, it's called business, maybe. <laughs> but they also, you know, in, in, in that regard, they were also very supportive when I went through my difficulties. And I came out sort of out of the closet uh, with my alcohol misuse. And I did my TEDx talk. And when I opened my nonprofit, sci-fi fans were responsible for funding my documentary One Little Pill. And I will forever be in their debt. I was dying to make this documentary about the treatment I advocate, the Sinclair method. And I was only able to do it by doing um, a fundraiser that the sci-fi fans contributed to because they knew of my struggle. They admired that I came out and that I was trying to help other people.
0: And they, they paid for that film. Let, let's dive into that. When did you start to feel because the opening parts in the book about getting going to the grocery store and buying it and some pimple kid looking at you thinking this is what you're buying at 6 a.m. lady, alcohol. Like, When did you start to get a sense like this monster had you by the balls?
1: Well, it's very interesting because I think that my story is not not unusual. I went through a very traumatic breakup and I had some unresolved childhood issues. After reading my book, you know, I was raped Mm -hmm. by our neighbor, many, many times. And my brother was killed when I was eight and my parents had a contentious relationship for some time. Um, so, and I was extremely sensitive child and I still am a highly sensitive person. So all of these things made an impact on me and, and drinking was fun until it wasn't fun. And when it wasn't, what happened was I started drinking on a more consistent basis. And a lot of the people that I was hanging around, uh, were drink heavy heavy drinkers because we were all wine clubbers and all that stuff it wasn't until a boyfriend of mine said to me you know you drink really quickly and that's when I went oh that's interesting and he said it kind of worries me and I I got I, I became very conscious of it at that point and I went wow I am drinking a lot and I made I think one of the biggest mistakes that everybody makes is I went cold turkey and yeah, now that
0: I'm doing that a yeah, lot
1: But now, but no, it was that first time that screwed everything up because what happens is now that I know about the alcohol deprivation effect is when you are on a path to alcoholism and your neuropathways are really, really engorged and they're big, they're like super lane highways, and you're regularly feeding your brain what it wants, which is ethanol, then you're on a sort sort of consistent basis. But when you stop and you deprive the brain of the ethanol, you go into what's called the alcohol deprivation effect and the first few months of sobriety feel fine. But then the cravings come back so heavily for the majority of people and you relapse much heavier than you were drinking before. So let's say I was drinking five nights a week, you know, half a bottle or a bottle at a time. I went from that heavy usage to literally being a binge drinker that could not stop. So it was like, here you're a social drinker, then you're sort of a heaviest drinker, and now you're sober, and now you're a, a wicked binge drinker. It literally did something to my brain and that snapped so that the second I touched alcohol after being sober for that extended period of time, I turned into a rapid learn learning i learned very rapidly the act of being a binge drinker it's just like i just changed so i was not a binge drinker prior to that so that that bout of surprise sobriety caused the alcohol deprivation effect and then once i started drinking again bam i was i had no off button at all at all so that then turned me into a life uh, at that point my my years were literally broken into how long can i stay sober and sobriety was not Fun then. You see, now I'm I'm happily abstinent from alcohol. I have zero cravings because of the Sinclair method. I don't even, I can be, I have alcohol all over the house. You know, my partner has the occasional drink. I don't care. I don't want it. I have no desire for it. That's a huge difference from when I was in in enforced sobriety. Right. Forced sobriety was a living hell. Everything was dictated by. Where can I go where there's no alcohol? How can I not be around it? I was judgy around people who were drinking. I was like an ex-smoker, just watching people going, "Oh, what a life! What what an alcoholic!" You know, judgy, horrible. I was awful to be around. I was impatient, miserable. I was snappy. I was. I was not a good sober person at all. I was literally white-knuckling every day of my life.
0: Oh God.
1: I was in a. I was in a different kind of hell. I was. Uh, this is what I call a dry drunk, and I hate that expression, but there's really no better way to say it. It's like how else do you explain why Bill W. died begging for whiskey? He was a dry drunk. He was literally deprived of the one thing he wanted his whole life, and he was white knuckling every day of his life through sobriety. That is not a life. I'm sorry, it's not a life, and I. You know that's why I advocate medications because I. I, I just believe in it. It shouldn't be that bloody hard no. to get. There. It should not be it you sh- it shouldn't be punitive and it shouldn't be difficult. If there's a medication that works for you, take it.
0: Yeah, you I mean know? going through the book and when you're having this battle, I was just like, "Oh my god." I was this, in war. This... Every single day was
1: war. This is why I looked so bad. I was exhausted. I couldn't sleep. It I mean, there was not there was no happy time i was i was not me i was not me i lost claudia and to not have yourself you know is is you know it's the worst it's the most it's the deepest deepest part of hell right i think addiction is literally the the absolute lowest depths of hell and i never thought of course you never think that it can happen to you because I'm strong and sensible and smart and savvy. And you know, I'm a street smart. I'm a survivor. I'm, I'm, how could this happen to me? And when it gets you, man, it's, it is, it is scary.
0: It's scary. Walk me through the Sinclair method and how you kind of found it and that path, because that changes your life. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I had, um, I had done some deep, deep begging, praying. Uh, I had tried everything. I had tried rehab and AA. Uh, I tried talk therapy. You did it all. I did it all. And I eventually um, had a bender that, that I was really frightened of the, you know, once again, I went cold Turkey, which is the worst thing you can do when you're, you should always taper off of alcohol. I had no idea. I had no clue. And I went, cold turkey and and had some very bad physical um, side effects. Like I thought I was going to stroke out. So I went to a medical detox um, first and only. And I, I thank God every day that I went there because that's where I found the flyer for uh, a treatment that involved a form of naltrexone. And when I went home, I Googled it and I found this book randomly popped up called the cure for alcoholism. And I thought, Oh yeah, that's snake oil. If I've ever heard, you know, and I, but they had a free excerpt from it and I read it. And, and because I come from a a medical background, my, my family are a lot of doctors and scientists and researchers. I, I really, my ears perked up when I was reading this and I thought, wow, this, this sounds like it makes sense. And I ended up, Asking my doctor, I I was very honest. I said, I'm really frightened to death of my drinking. And he said, oh, you're not drinking that much. How much are you drinking? I said, I can do two bottles of of wine at a sitting. And he said, that's nothing. And I I said, I really want naltrexone. And he said, I'm not going to give you an opiate. I said, it's not an opiate. It's an opiate blocker. You don't derive any pleasure from it. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I'm arguing with my doctor. I'm telling him I'm I'm an alcoholic and he won't give me an FDA approved drug for alcoholism. It's And I said, it's FDA approved since 1994. It's for alcoholism. And he said, you're not an alcoholic. Just cut down. And I said, I am an alcoholic. I said, and I want this
0: medication. He said, well, I'm not giving it to you. So I know. You're in this. I can't believe you're in this office arguing with a medical physician, a doctor. Yes. I'm trying to get better. And he's like, you're fine. No, I know. And my liver scan was off the chart elevated.
1: And he said, "You just stop for a while; it'll go back down." I could not believe this, and it's probably because he was drinking two bottles of wine a night. <laughs> he was justifying his own his own alcohol. He's like, so, "Listen, kid, you're not even I near." Have I have that and whiskey. So I had I this mean,
0: before yeah. you walked in. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I ended up having to order my drugs from India, and I I waited six weeks, and then I uh, I tried it, and it was an absolute miracle. And at that point, I said, "I will make this my." raison d'être my reason to be i will make this a household name if it's the last bloody thing i do on earth because this is barbaric that we aren't giving this to alcoholics and so i made a decision to write the book i contacted the the author of the cure for alcoholism he told me write a book yourself i wrote the book that wasn't enough i then made my documentary that wasn't enough i then opened my nonprofit foundation that wasn't enough. We are turning ten this summer, yes. um, and we're, we we have a, we have a shoestring budget. I have one employee. It's not enough. I need a staff, I need more money coming in. I need more I need I need to make this more well known. But the good news is, in the time that I've been doing this, the entire country of the United States and all of Canada is covered with doctors who will support you doing the Sinclair method, and you go from that when I started, there was nobody. Nobody that would support you, and now the entire country is covered. So I'm so happy about that. And during the pandemic, it was a huge boon for telemedicine, and that made everything a lot easier as well. Because suddenly, doctors said, You know what? I people are drinking too much, I can just prescribe this in a video chat. And so, here we are 10 years later. I mean, I started TSM in 2009, I was on it myself for uh until 2018, so for nine years. And then I was abstinent for four. um, And my nonprofit is turning 10. And in that time, we now have all these resources. If anybody goes to YouTube, there's a billion videos. There's been three TSM conferences. There's books about it. There's 20 year olds coming out that they're on TSM. There's telemedicine companies that only do TSM. There are um, movies about it. There, I mean, you know, now you can get a drink log app for Android that we have on our website. We have all these free resources. There are ten support meetings every week around the world, um, where people all around the globe meet up for the Sinclair Method meetings. We have communities everywhere. It's really, I'm very proud of the work that everybody's done, and I'm, and I'm especially proud uh, that I came out and and started yelling about this because it needs to be more well known. I even spoke at the US Senate. I this this is appalling that this is not that medications are not employed more often when people admit to their doctor, I have a drinking problem. To tell somebody, "Oh, just cut down and go to AA." is bullshit. Excuse my language, but you know what? The, AA is a peer support meeting. It's not a medical treatment. Right. This needs medical treatment. This is you know, you cannot pray addiction away. Believe me, I tried it. There are very few intervi- divine interventions that occur for people. I'm sure that they do exist. I met one woman who said she prayed for 18 hours and she's never touched alcohol again. Good for her. But one woman out of 10 years, you know, I've been, I've been informally um, coaching people for 13 years. And in that time, I have never met one person who went to rehab and stayed sober. Not one person. And here we are laughing about Ben Affleck going nine times, Britney Spears going 12 times. It's not funny. right? It's not funny. This is not funny. And it means that it's ineffective treatment. And it also means that it just isn't working. So, you know, and of course, these places, they don't offer medication. They offer 12-step programs with a view of the Malibu Beach, you know, and it's a, it's $200,000. It's ridiculous. It's a revolving door business model. And I think it should stop. I think it should, I think this is this multi-billion dollar
0: business of, of ineffective rehab treatment should just go the hell away. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I took from your book, the research. Is it just that simple that AA is a multi-billion dollar corporation that if they got rid of it, Sinclair does not subsidize that kind of money. I mean, it is it's a money maker. A, it's not a, it's, it's all about this.
1: Why can't we work together? My, my lo- logo of my nonprofit is options save lives. Not one thing works for everybody. So if you, but why can't you combine medication with AA? Why are they so hardcore a-holes that they won't allow somebody into a meeting if they're taking naltrexone for cravings? That to me is punitive barbaric well then again they're reading from a 110 year old book so it's it's just ridiculous right. i mean i'm sorry i'm not dissing aa it works for people but i'm angry at them for not allowing people who want to get better these are people who want to be sober and if they're on ketamine or baclofen or a safe, who cares but they're so hard that they won't let anybody in who's taking a medication and that is bullshit to me that's bullshit that, that to me is counterintuitive. It's like, oh, you're a peer support, loving group of people, like-minded people who say that the only thing you need to attend an AA meeting is the desire to be sober, yet you do not allow people in that say they're on naltrexone. So explain that to me. And by the way, Bill W. would have loved naltrexone and he would have used it himself. He was giving himself LSD, for God's sake, for his own alcoholism, and megadoses of niacin. So if you're going to tell me that that man wouldn't have embraced medication-assisted treatment for alcoholism, you're crazy. Yeah, you he, this would have been right up his alley. He was a science freak. He was trying everything. So I I just believe that we can all work together. That there's a place in rehab facilities where they give the person naltrexone for cravings, and then they tell them if you think you're going to drink, take it one hour prior to the first drink of the day. That's that's just common sense. Because it works better in a targeted manner. You give them the prescription. You say, take it for cravings. And if you're going to drink, take it as a prophylactic. How difficult is that? But they're so hardline 12-step abstinence only that they're causing these people to relapse and die. And I just think it's like, hey, harm reduction exists. Harm reduction is a lot more understandable and believable, especially for a young person. I have clients who are 22 years old. How are they going to stay sober
0: for 80 years? (laughs) Give me not going to happen. They're going to use. So let's let them use responsibly and safely. Right. I was getting sweaty hands listening to you in the book about having to take the pill an hour before you went to this event or a family event. I was like, oh, take the pill, Claudia. Take the pill. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the driving force for you to say, I'm going to do this nonprofit foundation. I've got to do this. I, I just
1: realized I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't do everything in my power to make this a household name there. This was the reason why I was born. This is why I was put here on earth, was to help others with this method. And if I can be an actress at the same time and have opportunities like this to talk about it, all the better.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: I, when I when I pray for a really great acting job, I don't pray for it for my own ego. I pray for it. So I'll have a bigger platform, To talk about the Sinclair method.
0: Yeah.
1: That's why I want to be more successful in my industry, not because it's ego or because I want that second home. It's because I can reach millions of people. Imagine, you know, my TED Talk's been seen by what, almost 5 million people or something like that. And imagine if I was on a big TV series or had a big film coming out. Then I could reach billions of people. You know, I mean, it's, it's, if I, or if I could put one person, you know, like a Ben Affleck on the Sinclair Method or Johnny Depp or somebody, you know, if I could just put them on the Sinclair Method and they could talk about it, then everybody would know about it. So I'm scratching, you know, I send emails to agents and publicists saying, please tell Brad Pitt about this pill, you know, and and of course, they never get anywhere. My emails end up in the trash. But why know, do you but, think that is? Why would... Po- Aren't going to say to their breadwinners, you know, oh, you came out in GQ as an alcoholic. Well, here's a video of a girl talking on a TEDx talk about a method. They don't care. They don't care about their health. The 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 actor's health. They don't. As long as they're making them money, they don't give a shit. You think they're going to advise them how to be
0: in recovery? I don't think so. (laughs) Ah, Jesus, so (laughs) shitty, so shitty. Or do you (laughs) look? Do you look back and go, damn it, there's some opportunities missed. Because of alcoholism.
1: Oh God! If I lived like that, I, I I couldn't live like that. I mean, does it does it break my heart at times that I lost at least a decade of my life to that son of a bitch? Um, yeah, I miss the I, I miss I miss those years. But on the other hand, I realize what I've gained from it and what I've learned along the way. And how happy I am now and that I overcame an immense struggle and that I can stand firmly in who I am today and be proud that I took something unbelievably heinous and turned it into something really beautiful, which is my nonprofit, my film, my TED talk, my, my advocacy, my coaching and just the love and hope that I give people. I mean, I literally every day get an email or a direct message on Instagram from somebody saying, you saved my life. Uh,
0: how does that feel? I mean, that's got to warm your heart to the, uh, to the fullest. It makes me want
1: to cry every time I read it. It makes me want to cry because what if I wouldn't have come out? What if I wouldn't have come out? What if I would have just been, what if I would have just said, you know what, nobody knows I'm an alcoholic in the business. So I could just fix myself and stay quiet and get my career back and do all that, you know, but I, I wouldn't have been able that's not me. That's not who I am. Jesus. This had had to be told this had to, this had to have a face attached to it. I had to tell my story. I wouldn't be able to myself if I didn't.
0: In the summer, or I don't know the summer, but the year 2017, the me too movement started taking off reading your book i was like my god i can't believe you didn't knock more people on their ass reading that book of either being pa- you know making passes at you vulgar things we're i was watching something in Corbin Bernstein came on the other day on the show. And I'm like, that son of a bitch. I don't even know him, but I hate the son of a bitch now. Like, I know.
1: like I know. I heard he has a new series. I was like, are you serious? God damn
0: it. masturbated on me. <laughs> I mean, how did you not just create physical harm on that man's face and knock him on his ass? Because I was savvy. I went to the producers and I said, well, Everybody
1: just witnessed this man doing something really disgusting to me. So you have a choice. You either shut down production because I raise a stink, or you option the script that I have.
0: (laughs) That was that was very savvy of you to say. I got a film and you're gonna fund it. You son (laughs) of a bitch.
1: Buy my script. (laughs)
0: for a year's option,
1: and then I get the rights back. In other words, I extorted them. I blackmailed them, and I'm proud of it. Yeah. I'm proud of it, because what? If, you know what would have happened if I would have come out and said that, oh, he did this, or Steven Seagal did this, or right. William Shatner did this? I would have been blackballed. Right. I would have been known as difficult to work with. So instead, I shut my mouth, or I told the right people, and or I got what I wanted from it, yeah. you know? That's as simple as that. These people, this this behavior was going to exist and persist. And at that point in in in
0: society, the woman would have been blamed. I would have been blamed. I would you have know. been a fired <laughs> grip worker on that set because I would have dropped a high boy right on his head. I told you what they did. Yeah, they baseball battered his his car.
1: Yeah. After it. somebody ruined the BMW. i don't know who it was but i have a feeling it was some of the crew members yeah because i saw what he did to me oh god i I can guarantee you these people like robert davi and all these men i guarantee you they don't even remember doing it i i I guarantee you that it was such a, a a common occurrence in their life the behavior that they don't remember i'm sure davi doesn't remember like putting cigarette burns in that prostitute's arm that I witnessed, you know, or Shatner trying to make out with me when I was 19 years old or any of that
0: stuff. Yeah, you are not enough to be his daughter, for God's sake. Oh, I'm sure they really don't remember, because they did it so many times. Right. You were one of 100,000. One of 100,000, exactly.
1: So why should I ruin my career by speaking up? <laughs> Nowadays, of course, you can, but that, back then, you just either grinned and bear it or, or you went and blackmailed them and said, by <laughs> myself. By the way, it was a great script. <laughs> it was. It,
0: was. All right, so it you you've you've called it. I got this quote here. You say that Babylon Five was your career highlight. You still stand by that? It was my career highlight.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, it was the it was one of the most fun jobs that I've ever had, for sure, and and the most enjoyable experience I've ever had
0: on a, on any acting job um it was at a right time too in that period of you know the 90s where there was no social media there's no internet uh, it was still pure it was tv you know now it would be you'd be on instagram and tiktok and doing reels and all kinds of crap and you would have really crazy followers but you still got that glimpse of good time tv for four or five years
1: yeah, no, it was, it was lovely. Um, do I think it's my height? No, I, I think that I still have yet to do what I was meant to do as a performer. <laughs> I, I just have a little delay because of my, my hiccup along the way, but I'm at the height of my powers now as an actress. So.
0: Did, you know, I mean, you are right. You, you're a master now at this point, you, you can I'm not only a master, but I think I look better than I did in my forties. So
1: what the hell, why not? <laughs> yeah I, I, i'm in shape i'm happier i'm
0: i'm uh i'm more content with who i am you look I'm great sp- your skin looks great you know that's always what matters for a woman you got to have great skin i have great skin you know i feel very uh i feel very good very hopeful about the future i'm not going anywhere so how's the voice work That's been something very interesting for you because that was not something a lot of actors did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even in the 80s, and now it's a regular thing.
1: It's delightful. I've done already four or five jobs this month, uh, well, in January, and I just did one yesterday. Um, I do everything from audio stories to uh, games. I actually (laughs) launched a comic book company last year with an Irish writer named Chris McCauley, and, um, yeah, so that, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of different
0: things in that, in that world as well. Did you, I mean, when that started, did you even think that would be something like when you were doing a, the cartoon and you did the voiceover that you'd be doing oh, yeah.
1: Jaguar? Yeah. Early on, I got, I got a Disney film and I got, um, I got a Disney film and I got, you know, the, the campaigns and stuff like that. That, that must've been yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. What's
0: what's future project? What do you got going on next?
1: Well, uh, I'm still playing the captain of the LAPD on 911. Um, Blood <laughs> of Luke is coming out uh, season two and three. Um, there's a new secret project that's coming out, a Babylon Five project that I'm not allowed to say anything about. Uh, that will be launching at San Diego Comic Con this summer. Um, what else? I have a book. Coming out from Macmillan Tour, a young adult book um, with my partner Morgan Buchanan. Um, plus, I've got the comic book company, which we have an RPG game coming out. We have, uh, oh gosh, issue two of Dark Legacies is coming out in the summertime, um, and the audio books from BBV. Uh, oh my gosh, there's so much stuff going on. <laughs> a lot
0: of stuff playboy hasn't called Said, hey we want you back no but i'll go (laughs) girl's gotta pay a mortgage (laughs) gotta gotta pay down that mortgage (laughs) thank you so much for doing this i'm glad you're doing great the book was fantastic it was like the best thing i got to do and listen to i was white knuckled the whole damn time listening to it it was great wonderful well it's it's nice to see you and uh and thank you very much for a fun chat. Yeah, you're the best. Keep 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 rocking it, okay, lady?
1: I will, sweetheart. Thank right. you. <laughs> Thanks, Claudia. Talk to you soon. Good
0: day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Claudia Christensen. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the show. Remember, you can follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on the website. At justagoodconversation.com. dot com. Thank you for listening.